We need Plato to keep us on track. Plato's not going to save us, okay? But he's going to remind us of the importance of spiritual growth, that there is real truth and real goodness, and yes, real beauty. Because more and more of my fellow evangelicals will say, oh yeah, I believe in absolute truth and goodness, but beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Beauty's whatever you believe. And already, we're, we're slipping. And we need Plato to remind us that goodness, truth, and beauty are a sort of package deal. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If I've heard it once, goodness, I think I've heard it a thousand times. Uh, Christians, evangelicals in particular, look at Plato with great suspicion. What in the world uh, does a non-Christian philosopher have anything to do with Christianity? Uh, Maybe you've heard this too, and and sometimes it's put uh, even more strongly than that to say, uh, not only what does Plato have to do with uh, Christianity, but why should Plato have anything to do with Christianity? What's so ironic about this type of objection, really uh, a type of default reaction against something outside of Christianity informing or, or even being used as a tool to talk about Christianity? Well, what's, what's behind this is, is actually a, a type of reaction that doesn't just have to do with Plato in particular, but actually our entire view of history and classical Western education as a whole. What I find so ironic, though, is that when you look at the greatest Christian thinkers of, of the past, they don't seem to be so threatened, uh, so insecure as we are today when it comes to reading, evaluating, and even retrieving uh, someone like Plato. Think, for example, of the great theologian Augustine. He once said in his book On Christian Doctrine, If those who are called philosophers, especially the Platonists, have said things which are indeed true and are well accommodated to our faith, they should not be feared. Augustine then goes on to explain how, yes, certainly there are areas in which he disagrees with these Platonists that he mentions, and yet he finds them allies in other areas that are absolutely crucial to understanding what a Christian worldview should look like in the first place. Well, in order to talk about Plato or Platonic thought more widely, uh, it's hard to think of someone who's more of an expert and who has written on this uh, in, in in, in more of an accessible manner than Lewis Marcos, of course. Many of you may know him from so many of the books he's published, on the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis. Of course, some of his more recent books include From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. He's also written a book called Myth Made Fact. But I have to mention 
his most recent book, uh, published by IVP Academic, called From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped the Christian Mind. Marcos is professor of English and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University, and I've asked him to come on to the Credo podcast uh, to, to answer some of these strong reactions, even objections to Platonic thought, as if it should, shouldn't have anything to do with Christianity at all. Luis Marcos, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, talking about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I can tell. And I just have to say to our listeners, before we get started, uh, I, I really have not been able to put this book down, uh, from, from Plato to Christ. Uh, not only do you treat uh, Plato himself in, uh, goodness, six chapters. Uh, so, so anyone out there who's unfamiliar with Plato, I mean, this is a perfect opportunity, a very accessible book. Uh, perfect opportunity, though, to understand uh, Socrates, Plato, and so much more. But what I love about it is you transition in the second half of the book to talk about Plato's Christian legacy, exploring the East as well as the West, and moving us all the way into the contemporary scene to, to someone like C.S. Lewis. Uh, but with all of that said, okay, uh, I think a number of listeners— uh, they may love Christian theology. They may love talking about Christian apologetics. They may, lo- may love talking about uh, Christian education. But you mentioned the word Plato or Platonism, and they, they're, they're, they begin to cringe. <laughs> and they begin to, 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 to say, well, what do you mean? How can, how can we as Christians... Uh, turn to someone like Plato, and 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 what in, what in the world would he have to offer Christianity? Uh, how how do you answer this type of question or really a, a objection? It's amazing. First of all, to understand any kind of question like this, we need to quickly go over an important theological distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Special revelation is when God speaks directly as he did to the Jews in the Old and New Testament, through the prophets, and supremely through Christ. But God also speaks through general revelation. I don't know about you, Matthew, but it often worried me. Are you telling me that before Christ came into the world, Jesus ignored 99% of humanity and only talked to the Jews? Well, only to the Jews did he speak directly, special revelation. But he wasn't invisible. He spoke to the rest of the world through creation, through our conscience, through our reason, even through our imagination and our dreams. And people can learn. Again, they're not going to learn how to be saved and find salvation in Christ, except through special revelation, through the scriptures, through Christ himself. But God does speak in other ways. And I'll just start where you began with Augustine's Confessions. In book seven of Augustine's Confessions, he's giving basically, I mean, it's a testimony, right? It's extremely... uh, you know, intellectual and theological and whatnot, but the Confessions is a testimony writ large of how he came to Christ and all the stages that he went through. And before he became a Christian, he went through a Neoplatonic stage, influenced by Plato and Plotinus, others. And what he says, don't forget this, he says, from the Platonists, I actually learned that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But only in the scriptures did I learn that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. So 
Plato doesn't understand at all. Again, he doesn't have special revelation, but he got a lot of things right by using the reason that God has given to us. And in that sense, he literally prepared the way so that for Augustine, it could be a sort of wonderful general movement or gentle movement right up into the fullness of truth. So Plato can prepare the way. And I believe, you know, I want other people, I want a a Chinese believer to write a book called From Confucius to Christ, Mm. right? Because I do believe that God has not left himself without witness. Paul himself says that, that he does speak in many ways. But again, he only speaks directly uh, through his son and through the Old and New Testament. Um, Now, the difference is, I do believe you're going to find it if you study the whole world. But God chose to incarnate himself at the early Roman Empire when the culture was Greco-Roman. And so he chose, that's not to say that our tradition is somehow better, right? But God used that. And the early theologians had no problem using Platonic concepts, but they did it with discernment, Matthew. They used words like logos and theos. Those are Greek words that Plato uses, but they didn't use the word Zeus, right? If you use the word Zeus, then, then you're getting into a kind of corruption there. But if you read the early Apollon, the real early ones, like Justin Martyr, I'm talking about, you know, uh, to the second century, these are people that look to Socrates as a role model, mm-hmm. as a martyr for the truth. Now, they weren't a martyr for Yahweh. They didn't know Yahweh, but they were fighting for the truth, that if there are gods, there needs to be one God, and that God needs to be a, uh, he needs to be the source of goodness and truth and beauty. We need Plato. And I, I hate to say this, but it drives me crazy when my fellow conservative evangelicals mm. are suspicious of Plato. I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to be very, very blunt here. This is one of the reasons I wrote the book, Matthew. You remember, it's still going on. Remember, whenever a liberal theologian wants to do away with something in Christianity that he doesn't like, what does he do? He blames it on Paul. Well, I only care about the words in red. I don't believe in Paul. Forget about the fact that Jesus is the one that talks the most about hell and devils, and Paul never stops talking about grace. We won't worry about that, okay? <laughs> but, but okay, uh, thank God evangelicals are not going to fall into that trap. But I'm finding more and more evangelicals, when there's something they don't like in Christianity, let's blame it on Plato. Why don't they like Plato? Because Plato is asserting that there is such a thing as absolute truth and goodness and beauty. And Mm -hmm. God forbid, he's talking about hierarchy. You know, there are people that are closer to the Holy Spirit. Okay, look, we're all saved by grace through faith, right? But there are people that are closer to God. And sometimes as Americans, we think it's because we're Christians, but it's because we're Americans and we've sucked in this egalitarianism that everybody has to be the same. We get all bent out of shape. You know, when a Catholic calls somebody a saint, what do you mean? We're all saints. Well, Matthew, of course we're all saints. That's biblical, right? But there are people that have grown more spiritually than you and I. And instead of being a bad American and wanting to tear them down, let's learn what it means, back to Plato, what it means to ascend the rising path, what it means to move closer to goodness, truth, and beauty. I believe we need Plato to keep us on track. Plato's not going to save us, okay? But he's going to remind us of the importance of spiritual growth, that there is real truth and real goodness, and yes, real beauty. 
because more and more of my fellow evangelicals will say, oh, yeah, I believe in absolute truth and goodness, but beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Beauty's whatever you believe. And already we're, we're slipping. And we need Plato to remind us that goodness, truth, and beauty are a sort of package deal. They go together. Right? And I write about that in my other books. But we, we, we need Plato because I believe firmly that God used this pre-Christian pagan writer to help prepare the pagan Greco-Roman world for the coming of Christ, mm. right? Because look, of course, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. He was the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the savior of the world. And so he also fulfills the best and highest that there is in Greco-Roman and pagan uh, poetry, history, philosophy. Uh, and Plato's, of all the people, Plato just got the closest, not only in his, in his ideas about truth, but in his desire to move towards that truth and grow towards that truth and not give way to illusion. Mm. That's a big question. That's a big answer. <laughs> it's a very good one because, it, and and I'll I'll be just you know you're being honest, so I'm going to be honest too here. I it, you know as you've shared your experience, I, my experience is not all that different. Um, I find it uh, somewhat ironic uh, because, goodness, in 2021, uh, we are feeling the effects of not only modernity but post-modernity, uh, in which. You hinted at this a minute ago. Uh, relativism, uh, subjectivism reigns, um, and beauty, goodness, truth, especially truth with a capital T. Uh, yep. These can't be taken for granted anymore. And and now we, we're actually finding ourselves in a world in which uh, someone like Plato is, in uh, Socrates, uh, you know, before him. Uh, this is a breath of fresh air, because even though we may have differences uh, on certain things, nonetheless, uh, very early on, uh, Socrates and Plato and, and others after them are actually assuming in so many ways uh, a, a picture of the world that says, no, there, there's something beyond what you see. Uh, there's something transcendent. There, it, it, we're not just limited to the physical uh, could could it be that uh, there there's actually a beauty and a goodness and a truth that is beyond yourself? Now, maybe we could tra transition from there because uh, when we talk about uh, Plato, for example, uh, we of course have to to maybe back up a little bit and talk about Socrates. Uh, when Socrates is, I mean, eventually uh, he meets his death under under severe pressure. I think it would be appropriate to maybe even call him a, a, a type of a martyr uh, in, in the philosophical tradition. Um, but early on, as, as Plato is giving us some of the accounts, and then uh, Plato himself is reflecting on, on Socrates' life, we begin to notice that, well, these sophists uh, who have dispensed with absolute truth uh, or a beauty that, that is beyond just the individual— these sophists sound very familiar to so many of the uh, secular intellectuals of our own day. So, so let's start there. Who, what is, introduce us for a minute to, to Socrates and, and tell us what, why is Plato so fixated on uh, 
really uh, repackaging Socrates for his own generation. You know, Matthew, it's, it's no exaggeration. I'm not being cute to say that Socrates was one of the first people to be canceled and thrown off <laughs> of, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter. I mean, seriously, you know, I, I, I published a book. It's been about three or four years now called Atheism on Trial. Mm. And the whole point of my book, my, my original title for that was Nothing New Under the Sun, is one of the things that drives me crazy when you read the new atheists, right, people like Richard Dawkins, they want to make you believe that their arguments are somehow based on new research and science or history or psychology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When in fact, Solomon's right that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that the new atheists have been saying for the last 20, 30 years have already been said by the sophists, by the pre-Socratics, by the uh, Gnostics, uh, by the Arians, by the nominalists in the Middle Ages. There's nothing new. And most of those attacks on God have been answered, not only by the great Christian thinkers, Augustine and Aquinas, but also by the higher pagans, people like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. Um, so there's nothing new here. The sophists, those were the, the teachers for hire, they were already cultural relativists long, long, long before Derrida and deconstruction mm. and postmodernism. They were already saying that truth and morality, they just change from one city to the next, what the Greeks called a polis, a city-state, and it changed better. So they were cultural, cultural relativists, social relativists way back when. There's nothing new about that. See, we're given this kind of nutty idea that's completely false, that there's this natural evolution that people go from somehow religion to science. Okay, there's some secularization theory, which has been completely disproven because religion is actually on the rise in most of the other parts of the world. It doesn't work like that. It's not as simple. It's more like a pendulum swing back and forth and back and forth. And Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle held back those sophists. And then along comes the New Testament and just put them in their place. And they didn't pop up again for quite a long time. But they're always there. They're always there. This is wrestling back and forth. So Socrates, okay, Socrates really begins philosophy. There are other philosophers, but why does he begin philosophy? At least two reasons. One of the things that Socrates does, and it's picked up by Plato, is he brings together ethics and metaphysics. What does that mean? Sometimes you have people that are very, very religious but they're not necessarily moral, as a lot of pagans are, right? Then you have a lot of people that are ethical, but they're not religious at all. Socrates says true philosophy not only deals with metaphysics, with the belief in the beyond, you know, God, all that sort of stuff, but it also has to do with the way we live our lives. What we believe and how we act need to go hand in hand, metaphysics and ethics. That's one of the first things he does, and it's still important today. The other thing is he puts a heavy focus on definition. What do you mean by justice or beauty or truth or goodness or friendship or courage? I mean, all, all these different dialogues are generally about defining a word. What do you mean by that word? And don't just tell me what that word means to you. Tell me what it means on a more universal, absolute sense. We're trying to get to the what this word really means. And so Socrates does that by using his famous Socratic method of question and answer. Back and forth, sometimes it's called the dialectic. Back and forth, back and forth. So you, you ask me, what's justice? I give you a definition. And then Socrates says, well, wait a minute. And I'm going to question and answer until I show you that that, that definition doesn't work. It's too limited or it's self-contradictory or whatever. And he does this, and it, it's a lot of fun. But here's the thing. 
thank God we have Plato. Socrates is great. Socrates kicks it off. He's the man. He's the martyr for truth. But Plato, without Plato, we're only halfway there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Socrates is the one who goes to the chalkboard. I sound like an old man, right? Go to the chalkboard, <laughs> and there's all sorts of things written on the board, but they're all wrong. And I can't write the correct things on the board till I erase the wrong things. Mm-hmm. So along comes Socrates, and it, it's a little bit like deconstruction. But it's not an end in itself. It is a deconstruction that breaks down the false definitions so that we can come in and put in the true definitions. So if you want to think of it this way, I'm looking up and I'm trying to see truth with a capital T, trying to see a big capital T in the sky. But in front of my eyes are all these little T's and all those little T's are blocking my vision of the capital letter T. And so they need to be wiped away or at least questioned. So we need to prepare the ground. That's what Socrates does. And I believe that the earliest dialogues that Plato wrote, I believe that those are more purely Socratic Mm. because they almost always end in an impasse. Well, now we know what courage is not, but what is it? And then we move on. That's one of the reasons that people did not like Socrates, because he would say, give me your definition. I'll, I'll destroy it. And then, well, what is your definition, Socrates? Well, I don't know. You know, my wisdom is in the fact that I don't know that I know that I don't know. Right? That's the famous Socratic humility. Right. Mm-hmm. But he gets things started. We, we can't move until we see the errors. But again, he is not like a sophist who explodes for the sake of exploding. He is breaking down so that we can rebuild And I believe that what Plato does is move from the negative phase to the positive phase. Mm -hmm. And you can see it if you ever read The Republic. That's his longest dialogue. Well, all of his dialogues are fairly short. There's only two that are long, The Republic and The Laws. And those are broken into books, book one, book two. There's 10 books uh, in, in The Republic and about that in The Laws. And it's all about what is justice. And the beginning of the uh, beginning of Republic, uh, two, uh, so w- one is justice means doing good to your friends and bad to your enemies. And after a long period of question and answer, Socrates explodes that. Then in comes the infamous Thrasymachus, who says that basically might rakes right. Justice is the will of the stronger. And then he breaks that one down. Well, but what is justice, Socrates? And now I think this is the platonic phase, and we spend the rest of the time trying to figure out what justice is. Mm -hmm. And of course, when he means justice, he's looking for justice in the soul. But how can you see justice in the soul? It's invisible. It's small, right? Well, what he does is, okay, we want to figure out what justice is in the soul in the microcosm of the soul. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take the microcosm and blow it up onto a macrocosm, and we're going to create a perfectly just city or a perfectly just state or republic. And then once we can figure that out, we can work our way back to the soul. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's really what Plato's interested in, the soul. But he kind of gets carried away, and his, his little boys there uh, keep pushing him and pushing him, and it gets really crazy and all that. But by the end, we've come back to understanding what justice is. And by the way, I'll just throw this out right now. Justice is not the same thing as fairness, okay? Fairness is a concern of adolescent children and politicians whom I won't name, okay? (laughs) Justice is not about everybody being exactly the same. And that's driving me crazy. And of course, if a Christian wants to tell you that Jesus was a radical egalitarian, of course, he'll immediately take you to John chapter 12 and the foot washing. Well, maybe they need to go back and read that again, because 
just before the foot washing, it says, and Jesus, knowing that all authority was his, then from a position of strength, he takes off his clothes, puts on the the, the thing and, and washes their feet, right? So it's from a position of strength. But then once he's done, this is a perfect time for Jesus to say, okay, now we're all whatever radical Quakers from now on. That's it. There are no, there don't this, there's no master. No, he says, you know, you call me master and teacher and you are right to do so. So he begins by saying, no, I am your master. But what I'm trying to teach you is not that there's no such thing as a master or a teacher or a, or a leader, but I'm teaching you a new kind of leadership that you see me, who am your master, washing your feet. You do it for others, what we would call um, the stewardship, maybe. And then if that's not bad enough, he then says um, the, uh, the, the student is not greater than his teacher. The messenger is not greater than the one he has sent. So it's not about breaking this down. It's about a new kind of vision of, of a leader who's a steward. Now, here's the crazy thing, right? Plato's almost seeing that. Because, okay, the most famous, probably the best known part about Plato is what's called the allegory of the cave. And that's, that's from the Republic. And he's trying to explain to us the nature of reality that we don't realize. And we are like people who are trapped inside a deep, deep cave. We're all the way down in the belly of the cave. And we're strapped to these chairs and we're facing the back wall of the cave. Now, behind us is a roaring fire, and between us and the fire are puppeteers. They've got these sticks, and the puppets are puppets of everything in the world, whether they're people or animals or trees or whatever. And as they go up and down with their puppets, the fire casts the shadows of the puppets onto the wall. And that's what we've seen all our lives. And we think it's reality. We don't realize that what we're seeing is actually the imitation of an imitation, the shadow of a shadow the shadow of puppets, which are themselves shadows of the real things outside the cave. Mm. And so there we are inside thinking that that's reality when it's really the shadow lands to use C.S. Lewis's phrase from the last battle. But then one of them breaks from his chair, turns around. At first he's blinded by the fire, but then slowly he realizes he sees the truth of his situation. He ends up going outside the cave and eventually he can look upon the real things. But here's the amazing thing that Socrates, and it's Plato, but Socrates says, but, you know, he really loved to stay out there in the outside air. But what does he do? He goes back into the cave oh. to try to liberate others. <laughs> and what will happen when he goes down there? They're going to get really mad at him. They're going to beat him. They're going to throw him down and they're going to kill him. Now, of course, Plato had in mind Socrates, right? Uh, who was, but is this not a pagan prophecy, if you will? of Christ, when God himself comes into our world of shadows and leads us to the truth, and nobody wants to hear that, and he's put to death. So this, this is just amazing, it's, it's, but it's, it's an idea of the philosopher. First of all, as far as I'm concerned, atheist philosopher is an oxymoron. Philosopher means a lover of truth. If you are an atheist, you don't believe there's any truth, no capital T truth. So what is it you're looking for? I don't, I don't even understand what atheist philosophy means, okay? You're, you're trying to understand the nature of things that aren't really real, right? Uh, you know, it, it bothers me. Even in Christianity, we, we, we've given up on ontology. That's the fancy word that means the study of the nature of things, the being of things. What is God? What is man? What is a, uh, masculine? What is feminine? We don't, we don't care about that. All we care about is, is epistemology. Epistemology means the, the, the study of knowing, not what things are, but how we know them. 
So instead of trying to understand the truth about God, we, we do things like the variety of religious experience. All I care about is my, is my experience. Well, no, I care about the reality. Okay. See, as Lewis said, uh, you don't believe in Christianity because it makes you feel good. You believe in Christianity because it's true. And if it's not true, you should stop believing in it. (laughs) So Plato is already preparing the Western world for that kind of philosophical rigor, but also philosophical truth. So once you learn the truth, it's going to change your life. You're going to have to change the way you live and the way you think in, 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 um, in light of the truth that has been revealed. That's another long answer there. <laughs> well, it's very helpful because uh, this metaphor of the cave uh, is so telling because it, this, this idea really unveils for Plato and uh, before him for, for Socrates in his own way. It, it really un- starts to unveil what it means then uh, to ascend. And this is this this concept of ascent, it, it's one that um, oh, yeah. it's not just found uh, in Plato, but uh, it's, it's well, it pervades uh, the entire great tradition uh, f- from some of the earliest thinkers uh, all the way, all the way through uh, to the Reformation. Um, but before we, we touch on that uh, idea of ascent, I, I want to mention one, one thing that uh, you, you hinted at, and and maybe I can approach it this way, you know. In in our own day, uh, it's very often we we bump into individuals in society who are more or less they they have more or less absorbed uh, what I would call the ideas or or the practices of say a Nietzsche, in which yep. they are uh, living life according to uh, well what Nietzsche called the slave ethic. You have one point, I think this is such a profound sentence, Uh, you have one point where you say this, uh, if Europe had to wait for Nietzsche to construct a powerful refutation of the existence of essential God-made rules of of virtue and, and morality, it is only because Plato and Aristotle so thoroughly bested Nietzsche's ancient heirs that it took them two millennia to regroup. <laughs> I, 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 I circled that, that sentence because here we are uh, and, and we're living in a world today in which we are feeling the effects of, of Nietzsche's uh, philosophy and ethic, and yet we're suspicious towards a Plato or an Aristotle yeah. Can you speak to this for a moment? How did Plato and Aristotle hold, I mean, in one sense, when you read the Republic, I mean, this is not new. Uh, this Nothing's new under the sun, right? I mean, Plato yep. seems to anticipate with some of, of his own nemeses, he seems to anticipate in, his, in conversation partners a type of Nietzsche mindset in his own day. So, So as he is, how does he respond? And then second of all, how does this heritage that that Plato and Aristotle are leaving behind? How does this hold off a, a Nietzsche worldview that then comes two millennia later? 
we do. We need them. Like I say, I, I like to think of them as wrestlers who knock down the foe, and you know they got they got broken for a long time, and it took them a long time to come back. And you know you get little bits and pieces <laughs> here and there, right? But I mean, okay, well, this is what's so brave about the Republic. Okay, he's uh, okay. The guy named Frosimicus, who's like the, the grandfather of Machiavelli and 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 Nietzsche and Michel Foucault and all these people that everything is about power and whatnot, uh, might makes right and all those things. Plato or Socrates is challenged. He says, there's a guy named Glaucon who kind of like you said in the beginning of this, I'm going to play a little devil's advocate, right? He plays devil's advocate and says, look, Plato, I, I want you to really prove to us that it's better to be a just man than an unjust man. And I'm going to make it difficult for you. I'm going to give you two hypotheticals. Okay. I'm going to start with the perfect unjust man. He's a perfect unjust man because he has convinced everybody else that he's perfectly just while in fact he's unjust, right? That's, well, that's one scenario. Here's the other scenario. The perfectly just man who always does well, but everybody thinks he's unjust, turns against him. And again, he says, will they not beat him and, 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 you know, and, 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 and do this? And they will end up by putting him, now he doesn't say putting him in a cross, but they will end up, uh, what's the word, uh, impaling him like Vlad the Impaler uh, and, and, it just, again, it seems like a, a, a prophecy of Christ. It's who is this perfectly just man? Again, he certainly has Socrates in mind. But who is this? But so we need to do this more difficultly. And he spends a long time and he explains that justice is a kind of balance within the soul. And the soul of the unjust man is literally sick. It is unbalanced, okay? I don't know if you have ever studied uh, more Eastern medicine, what they call holistic medicine. But one thing I like about Eastern medicine is it understands that the real nature of health is balance. And, of course, that's what everybody in the West thought, too, before the Enlightenment changed everything. Um, and, of course, all it does is get parodied because all we ever hear about medieval uh, health is this idea of bloodletting. Oh, they bled them to death and they died. You know, we watch. <laughs> I, it's like, okay, come on. Their idea was you need to balance the energies and the fluids and everything in your body. I think it was they got things wrong, but they got some things right as well. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when you are an unjust man, your soul is at war with itself. There's like mm -hmm. a civil war inside of you. Now, I want you to think about this as well. Okay, if you're a perfectly unjust man, then who do you obey? Well, you, you don't obey the people because you're more powerful than them. You don't obey the laws because you put yourself above the laws. Well, what do you obey? Because we all obey something. Well, if you're an absolute tyrant, the only thing you can obey are your own lusts and impulses and desires. And come on, Matthew, given long enough, what do our lusts and impulses and desires always lead to? They always lead to some kind of destruction and sickness. And so so it's, it's, it's crazy how he does it. But basically, the, the perfect tyrant, the perfect unjust man, the Hitler or whatever, he is not only a complete slave. But he's a complete slave to the worst taskmaster, which are our own lusts and impulses that drive us to ruin. Mm. This is the kind of stuff he's writing 2,400 years ago. It's wow. amazing. Wow. We need to hear it again. We yeah. need to hear what, what's really happening in the soul mm. because we really do have a soul. Okay. There, there is something in us that transcends this, you know, material time space uh, world we live in. That's clear. Right. There's something in us that transcends nature because we're the ones who can make up natural laws and alter nature. It's because there's a part of us that transcends it. And Plato understood that. Now, he didn't have special revelation. He didn't know. He, he, he certainly couldn't know the, the, the deepest aspect that we are not 
just souls inside of bodies, but we're enfleshed souls. That's not something Plato could have really understood without the special revelation of Genesis. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Christians today that don't understand it. How many of your friends think when they die, they're going to become angels? <laughs> right? I mean, we don't even understand it today. That's why we need N.T. Wright, these other people to remind us, hey, resurrection body, folks, you know? So, I mean, how can we blame Plato for not knowing things mm. when we live on the other side of the New Testament and we're still getting fooled all the time? <laughs> yeah. Now, let's go back to uh, his illustration of the cave for a minute. Uh, and, and let's okay. use this as a, as a launching pad forward uh, to both the East and the West, because I think this is one of the, the most genius parts of, of uh, your book is you, you don't just talk about Plato, but you actually show how, I mean, it's overwhelming both in East and West, how uh, Plato's ideas, uh, and, and maybe we could move beyond that and talk about Platonism, um, it pervades uh, the Eastern and Western traditions so that, yes, I mean, at points they're going to disagree uh, with Platonism or, or perhaps Neoplatonism, depending on who you're talking about, uh, right. on certain issues, but uh, they are also retrieving uh, other issues that are, are actually quite insightful as they uh, describe Christianity. Now, there's so many examples we could focus on, but maybe we could just focus on two for a minute. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. I mean, here is uh, one of the Cappadocians who d yep. we know him so well from his defense of Orthodox uh, Nicene Trinitarianism. But what's so interesting is that, uh, and, and people love, uh, we theologians especially love to talk about his theological orations uh, and, and how right, he right. gives us God and Christ in, in such a, a biblical and Orthodox manner. But in these same orations, he uh, alludes to, echoes, and sometimes comes really close to just outright referring to Plato's cave. Now, why in the world would he do that? Basically, what you're getting, especially in the East, is they're learning a certain orientation from Plato, and that's an orientation of the journey towards the ideal. They're not saying the world is evil. The world is good. It was created in God's image, right? But uh, let's start with this. Right? Jesus says, you cannot follow me unless you hate your father and hate your mother. Okay. Now, obviously, Jesus is not teaching us to literally hate our parents because that would be violating honor thy father and mother, the, 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 the first commandment that comes with a promise, right? No, obviously what Jesus is saying is that in comparison to the love we have for Christ, it would be almost as if we hated our father and mother. And if our father and mother were preventing us from growing towards Christ, we do need to put that aside, right? In the same way, okay, Lewis uses that word too, that we're living in the shadow lands, okay? He doesn't literally mean our world is only a shadow. Our world is real. It was created in God's image. God called it good. We are not Gnostics. We are not people who think that the earth is inherently fallen and flesh is evil. Obviously, we don't believe that because we believe God took on human flesh, okay? So the orientation, though, is compared to the thundering reality of Christ, the thundering reality of heaven. It is almost like we're living in the shadows, right? We, okay, we need to be reminded that one of the religions of America and the modern world is empiricism, right? Empiricism means that the only reliable source of knowledge is our five senses. If I can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, it don't exist, right? Well, 
I love it because those early church fathers, and it goes you know, right on to other ones, because they know Plato so well, they know no. It's the opposite. Oftentimes, our senses actually deceive us, right? Mm. And we need to move beyond. We can use our mind's eye. We still use that's a very platonic phrase, by the way, looking at our mind's eye. That we need to not be uh, deluded by the shadows, but we need to move towards the truth. And one thing I love about Gregory, and you might have picked up on this, is Gregory says, hey, if you're going to be a theologian, you have to be a sort of real Christian, mm. you know, like a saint, a moral, ethical person. Because when, when we're looking to understand God, we're not just playing mental masturbation here. Okay, we're, we're doing some pretty serious business, and there needs to be a movement towards the light. We need to be as committed as a Socrates or Plato uh, and not be fooled by the, the shadows of our world. Because again, a lot of times our senses actually lead us astray. And so what I'm getting at, I mean, they're learning specific things, but that's a metaphor that means a lot to those early Eastern fathers, the Gregory's. It is, we're moving out of the cave. We're moving out of the cave of shadows into the real world. And, you know, I love this. During the Middle Ages, uh, there, there was an outbreak of, of some of this Gnosticism. It was called nominalism. Now, the opposite of nominalism is realism. Now, I just love this, Matthew. It will show you how much we've changed since the Enlightenment. A realist today, for most people, a realist today means an empiricist, somebody who only cares about the real world and doesn't listen to fantasies and superstition and fairy tales, right? That's not what a realist is. Because of Plato, a realist is someone who believes that there are real things behind our words and our ideas, that there really is truth with a capital T and goodness with a capital G and beauty with a capital B. Now, for Plato, because he didn't have the Bible, he did seem to think of them in a more impersonal way. But Augustine comes along and he took Plato's forms and he put them in the mind of God, which is where they belong. And so a realist believes that behind our words are realities that transcend us, absolutes, all the things that Nietzsche destroyed. Okay, a nominalist, think of the word anonymous. A nominalist means in name, like a nominal Christian is someone who's a believer in name only. A nominalist thinks that the words we use, okay, I'm not talking about cat and dog, I'm also talking about truth and beauty and goodness, just that they're just words and there's no ultimate reality behind them. So, so we, we, we've been fighting this fight off and on towards the late, later Middle Ages. That's why we needed a, an Aquinas to, to put them down for a while and bring us back to realism again. Um, but again, Gregory's understanding this, that if you're doing theology, you are seeking an understanding of the truth. Uh, they, they, they often refer to those as the three universals. And a lot of teachers, and this is even more strong in the, in the West, would seek after what was called the beatific vision. Now, beatific actually means blessed, but it is beautiful, but it means blessed. The beatific vision is moving forward to look upon. Now, for Plato, beatific vision meant look upon those forms. But for a Christian, it means look upon the personal triune God and even participate in that absolute goodness, truth, and beauty. So, I mean, Gregory is not just about dry theology. It is about a journey, a journey up the rising path, up the, the ladder of love. It's sometimes called the divine ascent. I, to me, it's always the image of Jacob's ladder, right? And we, and we know, of course, from John chapter one, that Jesus is Jacob's ladder, the ladder that links God and man. Now, we've, you've mentioned uh, Gregory and Augustine. Uh, we, you've even, I, which thank you for doing this, uh, turning to Aquinas. 
uh, because uh, as soon as we get into the late medieval era, like you said, uh, the rise of nominalism has, uh, well, it's a, a, a huge paradigm shift. Uh, and now we've, we've yeah. moved away from realism. And yeah. uh, with nominalism, well, everything that we've just said is thrown into question. Now, uh, this is so essential because, you know, what, you know, you mentioned like with Augustine, for example, uh, this is uh, such a pivotal point for Augustine. In fact, maybe we could go so far to say that this is actually instrumental to Augustine's own conversion and understanding of Christianity, uh, that uh, understanding that these transcendent, uh, this transcendent idea of something, uh, as you said, something that is real, that goes beyond or behind uh, the very words we're using. Well, for Augustine, this actually gets at the very idea of God. Uh, what it means yeah. then for, for these ideas to actually be in the very mind of God. Now, all that said, all that said, uh, I, I imagine that uh, still you're going to have, and maybe you've had this experience too, there's going to be evangelicals especially who look at this and this is just so foreign and, and naturally so because yeah. uh, much of what we're saying, well, let's just be honest, uh, very few evangelicals today have ever even read Plato. Uh, maybe yeah. they've read a little bit of Augustine, but, but probably even then not much. Uh, nonetheless, they love, 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 love C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis is, okay. is really their uh, poster boy for, for what it means uh, to be a Christian, even a Christian apologist in the last century. Yeah. Now, what's so ironic, uh, a bit comical almost, is that what they don't recognize is that Lewis was a committed Christian Platonist. And we not only see this in uh, some of his essays, but we see it in those beloved uh, works of fiction that he wrote uh, for children and adults, but children, uh, Narnia. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I, I can't help but think of the last battle in which, how is he going to, how, how, is, how is this going to conclude? How, how is, well, he's going to go back to that concept of ascent and say, well, it's further up, it's further in, as he's describing this new Narnia that moves away from just the shadows. And you, yeah. you have that, that famous moment of where uh, uh, pr the professor, Diggory, right, Diggory Kirk, yeah. uh, basically says to them, it's all in Plato. It, it's yes. everything's in Plato. It, it that's that's where it's been. Well, you know what? What are they teaching you? And he goes on to talk about how well this wasn't the real Narnia. Uh, it, this was this was actually just the beginning, a shadow, a copy of the of right. the real Narnia. So here we see C.S. Lewis himself actually engaging uh, Platonic thought, but very much in the service of Christianity. Now. I'm going to throw it right. back to you, and maybe we can conclude on this note. Has C.S. Lewis just gone off the rails, or is he onto something that we today should listen to? I tell you, maybe the best way to put this, and Lewis talks about this in the book he wrote called Miracles, and he says, why is it that whenever we talk about God, or whenever we talk about heaven, we always use negative language? In other words, I'm bodily and God's non-bodily, or I'm corporeal and God's non-corporeal. God's not non-corporeal. He's transcorporeal. God is not, it's not like I'm personal and God's impersonal. God's transpersonal. I think a lot of people imagine that heaven is like earth with all the stuff thrown out, okay? 
Heaven is more than earth, not less than earth. Our resurrection bodies are more than our current bodies, not less than. And that whole orientation is a very platonic one to understand that it's more as you're journeying upward towards the truth, towards that which is really real and truly true. I just love the way he talks about it. And it's all a Plato, okay? That it's more real. And, and again, even Christians that are both, don't we always have this image of heaven, of, of insubstantial people floating around on clouds and stuff like that? A circumambient gas is one, one critical. I mean, but, but no, it's it's more real. And I mean, of course, you know, if we die today, there will be a, a period when we're disembodied awaiting the final resurrection. But at the end, our destiny is to have a resurrection body just like Jesus. The difference is ours won't have any scars on it, right? So Lewis, but, you know, Lewis can teach this, but I love the way he incarnates it. That's what's great about Plato. I mean, Plato teaches it, and then he makes it real in his myth. That's why I've got a, a two long chapters just on the Platonic myths, because that's where I think he makes them come real. He gives them substance and flesh, and, and we, we're re, we, we realize that we're, we're part of something dynamic, meta-narrative, as we call it today. We're part of that larger story. Uh, and it just opens, everything opens and expands. And, uh, you know, Lewis in The Great Divorce, too. I mean, <laughs> compared compared to heaven, hell and the damned souls are so shriveled up, so nothing, that when the damned souls visit heaven, their feet cannot even bend the grass. Grass is, the grass of heaven is so real and substantial that it's like stepping on diamonds for them. And it's painful. They can't, they can't bend it. Uh, one of them can walk on the water, <laughs> not because he's Jesus, but because the water's too real for him and he doesn't even sink into it. Right? Um, so Lewis, you know, gives us those ideas. And of course, for Lewis too, it's about spiritual growth. And, and again, unfortunately, you know, I, I understand I'm a good evangelical. You know, I'm, I'm always suspicious. Watch out. That sounds like works religion. No, we're not talking about works religion. You know, this is funny, but it's true, Matthew. As a Lewis scholar, I get to publish in all different magazines, all different denominations. And it took me a while to realize this. It wasn't only until about five years ago that I'm pretty traditional. So I'll say St. Paul or St. Augustine. And I noticed that whenever it was, you know, Catholic, Anglican, whatever, they kept it. But whenever it was an evangelical (laughs) magazine, they would change it to Paul the Apostle or Augustine of Hippo. Now, okay, look. Of course, it, I'm a Baptist. Of course, it's true that we're all saints, okay? But look, the funny thing is, we don't. the, the reason we don't like saints is because, are you tell me you're more spiritual than me, buddy? Or you think you're better than I am? Look, we have saints. We call them Wycliffe Bible translators, okay? Baptists have saints. We call them missionaries. We hold them way up. On, so we understand that, right? And, and it, it's just, I don't understand. We, we fall into this. Uh, this crazy egalitarian idea of everybody being the same. I mean, here's a good way of thinking about it, Matthew. Um, would you buy a, what city do you live in? Kansas City. Oh God, oh, okay. Well, I'm sure you have a symphony, right? Would you buy tickets to the Kansas City Symphony if the Kansas City Symphony was based on egalitarian principles and took anybody who wanted to be in there? You wouldn't, right? Would you buy season football tickets if your football team was chosen on egalitarian principles? Now, that's a bad example for me because I live in Houston, and that's actually how they put together the Houston Texans, <laughs> clearly. Um, but I mean, it's, it's come on. Stop this. But we keep giving into this. Evangelicals, I mean, now. we keep giving into this lowest common denominator world. and. No, okay, People, I, I'm not better than you in the sense that I have more value. We all have in, inherent and essential worth and value because we're made in the image of God, Imago Dei. 
But God gives us different strengths and different gifts. And some people use their gifts and some bury them in the ground like that wicked and lazy serpent that got his one talent taken away and given to the guy with 10. And then Jesus said something that evangelicals don't like. To him who has, more shall be given. To him who does not have, even when he has, will be taken away. Man, doesn't that sound un-American? But if you understand it, and Plato can help us understand the need to grow and make use of those gifts and go forward and not fall back in to the world of shadows, but be propelled forward on this journey into light. We've been talking to Louis Marcos, uh, professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, uh, the author of many, many great books, uh, books on C.S. Lewis, for example, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, uh, but also uh, the author of books like From Achilles to Christ or his most recent book, From Plato to Christ. To our listeners, I can't encourage you enough to grab uh, this most recent book, From Plato to Christ. Not only will uh, Marcos introduce you to the thought of someone like Plato, but he will also spend considerable time looking at the great tradition, the great thinkers East and West, and the many ways that they were indebted uh, to what Louis Marcos calls Christian Platonism. I think this will not only help us as we look at an Augustine, for example, and understand how his interaction with Neoplatonism is quite essential to how he is saved out of the Manichaean worldview uh, and begins to understand God and the world in, in a completely different light. But it'll also give us a greater pre- appreciation for some of our more recent heroes, uh, a C.S. Lewis, for example. And what Lewis is after, whether it's in his book Miracles or The Last Battle, when he's trying to describe not only the past and the present, but the world to come, and how, especially in our own century, which tends to really buy into the Nietzsche mindset, uh, especially in that light, well, I think someone like C.S. Lewis, his Christian Platonism, is going to remind us, actually, the shadows point to something real, something better, and God has provided a way of ascent through his own son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us on the Credo Podcast. Please return for more great episodes with some of the best thinkers today. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.